good morning. It's good to be here today. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. So you can turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. Or if you're using the Bibles here at the church, it'll be page 976, Ephesians chapter 2. So we'll look at verses 1 to 10 today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you as we gather this morning for your word. And we thank you especially for this powerful text that has taught your church so many things throughout the ages. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at it this morning, we would get a glimpse of your grace, which is great. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible tells us that some of Jesus' dearest friends were uh, Lazarus, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. But there comes a time when these friends find themselves in a hopeless situation. Lazarus becomes sick, and his sisters send to Jesus, telling him to come quickly and heal their brother. But before Jesus arrives, Lazarus dies. Death would seem to be the most hopeless of separations. And yet, Jesus, after weeping with his dear friends, tells Lazarus to come out of the grave. Now, Lazarus has been dead for four days already, and so the people do not want Jesus to open the tomb because they know they will smell his rotting flesh. So tell me, can the ears of a rotting corpse function? 
Can its legs lift up its body so that it can come out of the grave? Of course not. Lazarus is utterly helpless. If someone is going to tell him to come out of that grave, that person will also have to give him the ability to come out. They will have to restore his rotting flesh and put the breath of life back in his mouth. Well, as Lazarus walks out of the tomb, it is clear to everyone present that Jesus has that power. It is this same gift of life to the lifeless that these verses in Ephesians we've just read are all about. And when God's gift comes to those who can do nothing to receive it, and in fact have deserved the exact opposite of a gift, it is called grace. God's great gift This gift destroys our hopelessness, and it makes us humble before the Lord. The the gift of grace destroys our hopelessness and makes us humble. But before every Christian is hopeful and humble, they were hopeless. And so we turn to my first point, hopeless. For living organic creatures like us, there is no category, it would seem, more definitive than death, right? When someone dies, we can no longer talk to them. We can no longer know them. We're we're completely cut off from them. So Paul's use of this word here, dead, to describe the people he's writing to is provocative. Imagine getting a letter that said, you know, you were dead, Now, he's not speaking of physical death, of course. Just look at the verbs he uses, right? These people are walking, they're following, they're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So, what does Paul mean? He says, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. That is, you you couldn't say no to them. You were stuck in them. You were like a zombie in your pursuit of sin. You didn't even know what you were doing, that you were walking in sin. You just kept going, hands outstretched to whatever evil was placed before you. Spiritually, then, you were dead. Not physically. Not yet. But the dead need to be led. And so, like a blind man holding on to a leash. Uh, Paul explains in verse 2 that you followed, first, the course of this world. All that is around you that seeks to throw off God, you followed. And there is a ruler for all that is opposed to God. You followed him as well, the prince of the power of the air. This is a creative name for the devil that Paul uses here. Uh, The air was viewed in uh, pagan religions as the place where spirits and powers lived. And so this would be a name for the ruler of those uh, evil powers and spirits. 
Paul goes on at the end of verse 2 to explain that these spirits underneath this ruler are now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those of you who were here last week will remember that the city of Ephesus that Paul is writing to here, it was a hub for uh, magical practices and beliefs. And, And Paul here, he does not dismiss the reality of that world that they are so frightened of. In fact, he says, when you were a, a son of disobedience rather than a son of God, these evil forces were actually at work within you. And do not be deceived into thinking that those good, moral people in the world around you have escaped the power of these evil forces. Being a moral person can absolutely fit into the devil's plans. Moral people are easily deceived into believing they have no need for a savior. Jesus called the very moral Pharisees sons of hell. In fact, the apostle Paul, right, would have been one of these supremely moral people prior to being saved himself. And in verse three, he moves to include himself as one of those who are dead, right? Notice he's been using these um, second-person pronouns in the first couple verses, but then in verse 3, he switches to among whom we all once lived, right? A first-person pronoun, and then he adds the third thing that unbelievers are controlled by, the passions of the flesh, the desires of both mind and and body. And this begins to clarify for us uh, just how far this spiritual death extends. It's not just, you know, outside of you in the world or in the evil forces out there somewhere. It is within you, in your bodies, in your minds. The infection is total. This is not a cancer that can be contained. Paul slowly expands its reach out till every cell in your being is implicated. Right? The final nail in the coffin comes at the end of verse 3. And we were by nature children of wrath. We didn't learn to be children of wrath. Walking in sin isn't simply nurture or social conditioning. It's not who you are around. It is the state we are born in. We exist by nature as rebels who are unable to resist the leash and collar of the world, the devil, and our flesh. Because it's who we are as children of Adam. In fact, as Paul concludes in verse 3, all mankind is in this dark place. This is a horrific diagnosis. Just take a moment to grapple with the spiritual death that Paul is describing. He is saying that all Humanity is born in their very nature, 100% spiritually dead. Maybe you're someone who grew up in the church with your family, but 
never actually considered. I could be physically alive, walking around this church, but spiritually dead. Please don't ignore this question if you've never considered it. You may find church boring, the Bible hard to understand, but please listen to me. If you are spiritually dead, then you are doomed. The walking dead do not find their way to life. They are doomed to eternal death. And so with no ability to do anything for ourselves, we are truly a hopeless case. Only the story of Lazarus gives us hope because there is someone who can call the dead back to life. And so now my second point, hopeful, hopeful. If you are an impatient person like me, you may have found at times that you're talking to someone who just will not get to the point and you're tempted to break in and sort of prompt them. So you were saying, and and the point of all this is, uh, God must have identified this as a particular weak point in my sanctification because I currently have a son who engages in this kind of non-storytelling He announces his intention to tell you something and you prepare to settle in for several minutes while all sorts of words and repetitive phrases come out of his mouth, not all exactly connected, followed eventually by a conclusion that rarely justifies all the words he used to arrive at. And yet suspense, when it is used well, has the power to make a story matter to you. It keeps your attention. It gets you interested in in what might happen next. And Paul is holding us in suspense here. Uh, Just like the first two sections of Ephesians that we saw, uh, this section from verses 1 to 10, it's one sentence in the original Greek, But Paul does not tell us either the main subject or any of the main verbs until we finally get to verse 4. And he says, but God. The subject of his 10-verse sentence. But he's got even more suspense for us because before he will tell us what God is going to do, He wants to tell us why he will act. He says because he is rich in mercy. And he is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Amazing. Doomed dead people are not very lovely. But God doesn't make us alive out of pity Nor does he look into our hearts and and find a little bit of good that makes us worthy. He saves us because he loves us. The gods of the pagan world are not like this. The gods of the secular world are not like this. And notice in verse 5 how intent on this point Paul is. He repeats 
what he said way back in verse 1, even when we were dead in our trespasses. This is to stress what Paul desperately wants his readers to see, that there is nothing in believers that led to their salvation. Spiritually, they are as helpless as Lazarus in the grave. Nobody would have called out to Lazarus as he lay in that grave. Hey, Lazarus, if you just reach out to Jesus, he'll save you. If you just take that first little step, he'll do the rest. If you would just want to be living again, then, then Jesus will make you alive. Of course not. A dead person can take no initiative in coming alive. God chose to make us alive when we were dead. And we saw in our last point how complete that death was. We are being forced into a place of radical humility and reliance by Paul. And yet this position is not a dishonorable one. Because as we finally look at Paul's main verbs in verse 5, we find ourselves deeply honored. We are made alive, raised in new life, and seated in the heavenly places, all with Christ. Paul is beginning to describe for us what it looks like to be the body and the fullness of Christ that we saw uh, last week. It looks like being present with Jesus in these historical moments of victory. Now, this is obviously not a physical presence since none of us had yet been born when Jesus did these things. Yet Paul says that because of his great love, God made us alive with Christ. So there is this union we have with Christ that transcends physical and temporal boundaries such that when his heart began to beat again, In that dark tomb, every chosen child of God came to life with him. And when Christ leapt up, right, in his glorious redeemed body, so also every believer leapt up with him in spiritual life now and a physical body at his return. And as Christ sat down in victory at the hand of God as the chosen son to rule over all the powers in the universe, so also all true believers were given a seat in God's throne room with direct access to their father. There's a a present spiritual reality to all of these ways that we are united to Jesus. And there is an overwhelming future reality as well. Paul recognizes that in verse 7, right, by noting that in the coming ages, it's really the time when the overwhelming riches of God's grace and kindness will actually be seen. But I, I think what we have now is already overwhelming. We are the doomed dead. We, I think we would be content just to be allowed through the gates of heaven. 
But the way in which our lives are bound to the life of Jesus here, I mean, we are only getting hints of what this actually means, but it is already far more than we could imagine. And let me say also that practically, what this union with Christ means is not simply salvation in the next life, but new life now as well. Uh, Every true Christian has the ability to fight sin in this life and grow in holiness as a result of this coming alive with Christ. And the blessing of living with other believers in a church is seeing this fight happen, seeing people grow over time, seeing them inwardly transformed as they sacrifice for each other as they love, like they've been loved, even as we all outwardly waste away. And it's really this practical aspect of uh, living as someone who fights sin and, and strives to do what is good that Paul wants to begin to motivate us towards here at the end of his text. So let's look at my final point, humble, humble, The first step to living the Christian life should be the easiest, but many of us actually find this very difficult. It begins with total reliance on grace. Total reliance on grace. Paul says, it is by grace we are saved. Now you may have heard grace defined as God's riches at Christ's expense which is an excellent definition. But I think we should add to that here because of Paul's emphasis in this passage that it is God's riches at Christ's expense despite your rebellion, right? Part of Paul's whole point here is that God offers Christ to people who are dead in their sins. When they are dead, these are not morally neutral people. These are people who by nature would regard God and his ways with hatred. And then Paul goes on to tell us this grace, this gift, is claimed by faith, by which he means belief in Jesus. But lest you think that here you have finally found something that you can do for yourself, he immediately continues, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works. Paul is like a pit bull when he gets his teeth on something he wants to communicate to people. He is driving us relentlessly towards total reliance on God. He wants us to be desperately humble because he knows that is exactly the place we need to be to begin the Christian life. And he makes sure to clarify here. This grace is a gift, not a work. And this faith is a gift, not a work. They are not things you can do, not things you can perform. The root of salvation is all God through and through. 
Many a Christian has tried time after time after time again to find some role in their salvation. We are relentlessly proud and independent. Even when we think we've been humbled through some experience, we find ourselves again scrabbling for some scrap of our own works to cover our nakedness with. Why? God sees all, and yet still he loves us. He offers us the riches of his grace in kindness in Christ Jesus. Take the gift. Everyone in this world just wants to boast. And if you are tired of that, I will tell you how to escape. Boast in Jesus Christ. That is the only escape, total reliance on his grace. If you want to live the Christian life, you've got to get back to that place over and over again. Every week when you come to church, do it in the confession of sin, the assurance of pardon. And if you detect a hint of pride in your confession, it's a little warning for you. Go back to these verses and the reminder That your life as a Christian begins with an utterly divine gift that you qualified for simply because God loved you. That's it. In that place of humility, we can freely repent to others when we sin. We can do things that don't get seen. We can be content with our place in life. We can accept suffering, disgust, rejection. And finally, in that place of humble trust, we can begin to accept God's plan for the rest of our lives. Do you really think that the one who gave you this greatest of gifts, even when you were dead and dirty and rotten, doesn't also have a good plan for the rest of your life. He will protect his investment. If you can humble yourself to accept his grace for your salvation, you can humble yourself to accept his grace for the rest of your life too. Notice what Paul says here in verse 10. We were created for good works. And not just any old good works that we choose ourselves. Works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the unique ways that you are gifted or not gifted are part of the way that God prepared you to shine little kernels of his glory to the world through the works that he has prepared for you. This is no rough sketch of a plan. There are not multiple versions of the plan that take account of variables that God somehow didn't know about. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And now we can add to that. He chose the works we should walk in. We've been brought from walking in sin. Verse 2, to begin walking in what is good. Verse 10, may this walk become your deep desire as you embrace the hope 
and the humility of God's great gift to you, his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that when we make Jesus our Savior, you save us from spiritual death. You offer us a great and incredible gift that allows us to live with you forever. We don't even know the riches of your kindness that will be displayed towards us in the ages to come. And we know that we can do nothing to earn this gift or to qualify for this gift. Keep us from trying to add to your grace. Instead, Lord, help us to hug tighter to Jesus and his death, his life, his resurrection, his exaltation at your right hand. We know our union with him gives us the right to speak to you right now. We want to live with hope and humility. And may we choose to walk in your works this week. In Jesus' name, amen.